During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you again about a podcast I think you should check out and the coffee they sell. It's called Uneffing the Republic, so keep an ear out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at some of the history of labor struggles in America and the current wave of strikes that is giving renewed energy to the labor union movement and the struggle for better working conditions for all. Clips today are from On the Media, Jacobin Radio, Intercepted, Uneffing the Republic, Economic Update, and the Tom Hartman Program with additional members-only clips from On the Media, and on Effing the Republic. In his book, Breaking Things at Work, the Luddites are right about why you hate your job. Mueller makes the case that the Luddite workers weren't technophobes, but rather tech-savvy pioneers. These are skilled craftspeople, so they're very good at using technology, in fact and very perceptive about what the effects of technology will be on their trade. And they immediately perceive that these new factory technologies create textiles of lower quality, that lower wages, and undermine entire communities of families, towns, regions. And in fact, that is ultimately what happened to these places. To see the Luddites as somehow irrational, we can only do that from the vantage point of 200 years later, thinking that what happened to them was sort of inevitable and they should have just given up. I think if you were in their position, uh, you would probably do something similar to what they did. And what exactly did they do and how did they manage to organize themselves to do it? They would go on these kind of midnight raids and smash up gig mills and stocking frames. But they actually engaged in a lot of other practices. You know, they would uh, have protests, they would have strikes. But one thing that I think is really valuable to think about was how these practices of machine breaking required a deep community solidarity that really shifted the balance of power. For a while, at least, you said it worked the factory owners were terrified, and wages went up. But then they sent in the troops. <laughs> More troops than they had fighting Napoleon on the continent, and they were able to crack down effectively on the rebellion. But this kind of militant opposition to technology doesn't stop, even if the Luddites themselves lost the battle. In fact, you had similar kinds of rebellions in France. They actually were so successful that factories closed for another 20 years, and they didn't even try to use those machines until the next generation. It is interesting, the international element of this. A hundred years after the Luddites took action, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was a massive organization of transient workers and unemployed people in the U.S., published pamphlets on the power of sabotage. There was this flourishing of interest in the Wobblies, which was a kind of interesting, vibrant milieu of these grassroots activists and militants and workers. The Wobblies were members of the industrial workers of the world. Exactly. And something that these wobbly writers shared with the Luddites is they said, well, sabotage can be something that workers do. But this is a kind of parallel response to what they called capitalist sabotage, which is when rotten food was put out for sale or products were adulterated, right? This is the same time that Upton Sinclair's writing The Jungle. You have really poor quality, in some cases dangerous and deadly, 
products being sold. And so they said, well, if they can sabotage people in the name of profit, we can conduct sabotage in the name of attacking their profits. During the Depression, you write that the international workers of the world initially held up some hope for technocracy, but eventually the group tired of these visions you wrote. (laughs) They do not have a program for accomplishing things, wrote the IWW, and they completely exclude the class struggle, so there's nothing left to discuss there. (laughs) Yeah, so by the 1930s, the IWW wasn't what it used to be. Membership had dropped off quite a bit. And there was this weird out there intellectual movement, speculation about we'll have a fully automated society, technology will solve all of our problems. This movement called the technocracy movement. Interestingly, still kind of around, at least they have a website. But ultimately, the people behind that movement didn't really have a kind of politics. They held out a lot of visions of technology will erase work, People will be out of work. What should we do? They had ideas around, you know, state support, transition to a new mode of production, things that people are writing books about today. But for the Wobblies, they said, our politics are the politics of class struggle. Because fundamentally, you're in capitalism, which means there's an antagonism between bosses and workers. And all politics has to flow from that. And I think that is also something we need to think about in our current moment, right? It'd be really nice to say, oh yeah, we have the technology, it could give abundance to everyone. But it's not going to come to us purely out of the development of technology. It's only going to come from some kind of political struggle. I will start by just talking about the sort of character of the corporations themselves. I mean, as you said, you know, both the former CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, is probably the person who's you know most closely associated with the company, the former CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I mean, they're not your typical diehard Republican anti-union union busting, you know, Bezos owns the Washington Post. You know, Howard Schultz has been associated with Democrats for a long, long time. But when you look at the actual labor model, the business model and the the labor practices within the company, you know, all of this talk about high starting wages, about, you know, socially progressive policies within the workplace, about, you know, various benefits, college tuition, you know, various things they might, uh, that's all very well. But really at the core, they have, I think, what I would say is quite a sort of dystopian and quite depressing a model of algorithmic management low-wage labor, disposable workers, and no independent voice at the workplace. And, you know, obviously that's extremely important. So they think this is the future of work, that they have it figured out, that they can afford to offer, whether it's 15, 16, maybe in some cases 17 bucks an hour starting pay. They can talk about certain benefits that in theory sound really good. However, you know, there are some things we have to say, but all of those things. One of the things, and this is true at Starbucks, it's also true of Amazon, the starting pay on the face of it is it's not bad at all. 
but you don't get to move up. You know, you can be there for years and years and years, and you're not earning much more than you were when you started off. So the opportunities for progression, the opportunities for career advancement, the opportunities to earn a livable wage are very limited. And that's part of the reason that people leave in such high numbers. And the fact that they do leave in such high numbers means that many of the other benefits that these companies tout are actually often not available to them because they don't stick around long enough to to take advantage of the benefits. There have been many other things during the pandemic. You know, some of them were just so traditional, you know, what we would consider to be traditional union issues to do with health benefits or to do with you know, other sick pay, really important benefits, obviously, during a pandemic. But some of it was very much pandemic and COVID related. You know, there were concerns about safety practices within the stores. But just more than that, just the sort of concern about a lack of employee voice and, you know, a lack of, for want of a better way of putting it, respect and justice on the job. And so, you know, on the one hand, These are the kind of workers who would benefit enormously from unionization. I mean, we know this from the Bureau of Labor Statistics figures. If you compare workers in these types of food service jobs, you know, unionized workers versus non-union workers, the unionized workers do so much better. They do better in wages, but, you know, wages is actually not the key to the difference. The real difference is in benefits and health benefits and pension benefits and those types of things. It's an absolutely enormous difference. But They also do better in terms of having an independent voice at work, you know, and as I say, I think, you know, with especially during the COVID pandemic, you know, what we've seen is a lot of agitation, a lot of organizing that's going around that I think the issues were always there, but, you know, they've really been heightened as a result of the COVID pandemic. Last week, more than 30,000 healthcare workers working for Kaiser Permanente provided a 10-day notice to the company that on November 15th, they would go on strike. More than 90% of Kaiser Permanente's U.S. workforce opted to authorize a strike, which could be the largest in the country so far this year. Last month, union members voted 96% in favor of striking. Nearly 2,000 Kaiser Permanente workers here in Hawaii could be going on strike soon. Unless something changes, 3,400 Kaiser workers from Oregon and Washington will walk off the job, along with workers from five other states. The plan for workers to strike comes after months of failed negotiations between healthcare worker unions and Kaiser, the national nonprofit hospital behemoth. You know, the labor movement has been fighting for equal pay for equal work since the beginning of time. It's a fairly straightforward concept. And the weekend before they announced the strike, union workers marched in Southern California. Brothers and sisters, let's go forward and win. The main point of contention during contract negotiations is a proposal by Kaiser to establish a two-tier wage system. What this means is future Kaiser workers will be paid less than current workers. The union is also demanding a 4% permanent increase in wages, while the company is only proposing 2%. 
In a statement to The Intercept, Kaiser emphasized its appreciation for its essential workers during the pandemic and outlined a number of temporary benefits it had provided them. An updated proposal from Kaiser to workers still includes a second tier with a significant pay cut. Well, we don't want a two-tier system, and they seem to be holding fast on that two-tier system with a reduction in pay and benefits for new employees that would be coming, which would ultimately divide us. And that's an old union-busting technique of dividing and conquering. That's Kimberly Mullen, a registered nurse with Kaiser Permanente in California. The challenge with the two-tier system is when you have people doing the same work for considerably different pay, it builds animosity towards union member against union member. It causes division, and sometimes it will affect care of patients with the animosity, and I don't want to take care of that, or I don't want to do that. Why, why are they getting this assignment? Why am I getting that assignment? They get paid more than I do. Why don't they do this or that? It could cause some kind of internal strife among the union members. So brothers and sisters, this is not a company in financial crisis. So why has Kaiser acted like this? When it thrived, it thrived during the pandemic. Because of you working people, union people, they made money during the pandemic. Why? Because you go in every day, you take care of patients, you risk your own health and safety to do your job. Workers at the rally told The Intercept that in the past year and a half, They've worked long, difficult hours because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It has been scary. It has been challenging. I've been afraid of taking something home to my daughter. We have changes in PPE requirements. We have changes in rules every day. It's been scary and it's been emotional. Um, Taking care of patients who have COVID and being their only support system, not letting anyone else in. You cry with them behind a mask and goggles and PPE and full gear. You hold their hand with a gloved hand and, you know, some distance, still being afraid, but you need to be there emotionally for your patients that are dying um, and suffering because we don't allow their support system in. Um, it's uh, It's been very emotional, is what I'll say. Um, and uh, despite all of that, we come to work and we endanger ourselves, and we've endangered our families and our loved ones just so we can take care of the community. And um, to be like offered something that would ultimately divide us and knock us down, it's quite insulting. And it's like, um, while we're saving the world, they're planning our demise and planning to divide and conquer us while all we were trying to do was save the world through this pandemic. Make no mistake about it. Each and every one of you are indeed heroic. And you should be treated like heroes. You should be compensated and respected like the heroes that you are. You know, all across the country, healthcare professionals are overworked under-respected and struggling, struggling to continue in a profession that they love. 
By now, you know all about our friends and sponsors over at the Unfucking the Republic podcast. They cover a range of socioeconomic, political, social, and cultural issues, all while swearing. In fact, you're about to hear a clip of theirs, so I'm not even going to bother begging you to check it out. I'm just going to play a clip for you. For now, I'll just tell you about a really unique aspect of their show, which is their funding source. Instead of primarily asking for donations, though you can make those too, or, God forbid, running ads, they have a partnership with a native coffee roaster from a reservation in New York. Every sale of their organic coffee goes to support the roasters on the reservation and the show. So if you're a coffee drinker, or if you're just a person who likes to drink coffee but doesn't like being pigeonholed by having a whole noun like coffee drinker applied to you, check them out and take your pick from their unf*** your morning espresso, unf*** your afternoon black medicine, or their decaffeinated unf***ing. Find all the options to purchase for yourself or as a gift at unftr.com slash shop. With every purchase, you'll be supporting independent journalism, indigenous economic development, and the health-giving tradition of obscenity. Seriously, look that up. Again, check them out at unftr.com slash shop or through the link in our show notes. Ah, Kellogg's, the maker of life-sustaining food like Pop-Tarts and Frosted Flakes. Stuff that's really good for you. No, not just good. They're good. Taking a look at their top-line financials, we see some pretty healthy stuff, just like their Pop-Tarts. Kellogg's turned a profit of about $1.7 billion on $13 billion in sales in 2020. And, good news folks, revenue and profits are set to increase this year by 9%, as they've already posted a profit through three quarters in 21 of $1.4 billion. And yet, on the ground, the workers at Kellogg's are battling management over contract negotiations that would see a split in tier compensation for new and less tenured workers at the plants. As the Jacobin reports, quote, sales are up. Steve Kalane, Kellogg's CEO, made roughly 11.6 million last year, and the company recently authorized 1.5 billion in stock buybacks to boost shareholders' returns, end quote. The dispute between labor and management boils down to Kellogg's desire to create a tier system that will provide fewer benefits to new members. So the workers contend that this would create ill will between tiered members and put tenured members on the chopping block during periods of cost cutting. And by the way, that's exactly why governments and companies do this. What should be lauded about this is that the Kellogg's workers aren't fighting for their individual current rights. They're fighting for future members. If there was ever a noble struggle, this is it. And that's not obviously the way that Kellogg's views it. The world is a mess. Supply chains are disrupted and costs are rising. They view their actions as timely and responsible, ultimately protecting their more important constituency, shareholders. And here's where I want to dissect the Wall Street Insider speech so we can all listen to how this goes in real time. Let's go through this together and we'll translate what the Kellogg CEO is saying to Wall Street in a recent investor relations interview with CNBC. Take a listen. Yeah, it was. We had, we had a very strong quarter. You know, we drove volume, we drove price, we drove mix. Uh, you know, our brands held up very well despite all the supply chain challenges. So to begin, <laughs> Kellogg's had a very strong quarter. That's on top of a strong trailing 12 months in growth and revenue and cash flows, as we said before. So the key here is that they drove what he says, volume, price and mix. 
So driving volume and mix means that they just sold a lot across their portfolio. More sugary cereal and Cheez-Its to the world. No great innovation, just sold a lot. But it's the price driver that should get everyone's attention. He said that volume increased, which contributed to the growth of sales, and that makes sense. But they also raised their prices. And we know that this was just a decision to drive profit because he ends the clip saying they did all of this despite supply chain issues, which makes one wonder whether they actually experienced any issues or whether they're just using that as a talking point. Because if you had supply chain issues, I mean real ones, you wouldn't drive more volume. You would drive less. It's perfectly rational to increase prices to maintain margin if you're having volume issues. But here he's saying they had no problem distributing and increasing the volume and they raised prices. So if you listen carefully, you'll hear Milton Friedman laughing in his grave. Anyway, let's continue. Our international business performed exceptionally well, led by uh, our EMEA region, a highlight on Africa. Our Europe business had 16 consecutive quarters of growth, a uh, really outstanding performance in the UK and Russia. So broad-based across the patch for us, uh, but as you pointed out, price mix was, was clearly uh, an important driver for us. 16 straight quarters of growth in Europe, and Kellogg's is doing the Lord's work by introducing Pringles and Pop-Tarts to the African continent. No vaccines for you, but here's some diabetes in a can. No hint of supply chain issues there, but at least he acknowledges that in addition to expanding into new markets, they were able to raise prices despite little to no pressure to do so. Just greed. This is what greed sounds like. There's obviously a lot of supply chain challenges, a lot of things to overcome. But when we look at where we've been over the course of the last several years, you know, more and more our snacks business especially stands out and it's really been driving sustainable, robust, dependable growth for us. And we see that continuing. Here's that fucking supply chain thing again. It's pretty much all we've heard about in corporate media. And I'm fully acknowledging that there are still inventory issues and buildups at the ports and companies are struggling to find containers and we're working through existing stockpiles of inventory all over the world. But we're talking right now about fucking potato chips and frosted flakes. You don't get to say that you're obviously working through supply chain issues while at the same time saying you're exploding in new international markets and increasing the volume of sales. These two things do not go together, but that's Wall Street, everyone. If there's a prevailing sentiment, true or not, go with it and claim it for your own. Steve, let's talk a little bit about the labor piece of the puzzle right now. The fact that uh, your workers that are unionized, that are striking, have rejected the most recent offer you've put in front of them. How is that factoring into your forecast and what is it going to take to see a deal uh, actually manifest? Okay, game on, motherfucker. Here we go. What I'd say about that is, you know, we're obviously still in negotiations with our people. We want our people back. I mean, they performed so heroically throughout the course of the last 18 months. Stop. Okay, Steve. Fuck you. Fuck you and your essential worker you performed heroically bullshit. Fuck you. Fuck your $11 million paycheck and fuck your pandering. Heroes when you need them. Shit heels when you don't. Continue. The workers we're talking about are specific to our four U.S. cereal plants. And they have right now a contract uh, that's expired that has industry-leading wages and benefits. And we are putting in front of them, we put in front of them increases uh, in compensation. So there's no takeaways, despite what you know some may have said. There are no takeaways. It is an excellent offer. Uh, we want our people to see that offer. We want our people back. And, uh, you know, we're working very, very hard to make that happen. 
That's not the issue, Steve. That's what makes this a noble fight and what makes you a fucking pariah. These workers are standing up for the ones to come, not themselves. He's reframing the issue in the most patronizing way possible, saying they're heroes, but also greedy. The next bit is Steve-O answering a question about inflation and if he thinks it's going to be around for a while. And so we don't we don't see any kind of mitigation um, in commodity pressures, in cost pressures. And what you're seeing is all these friction pressures, you know, logistics, all things supply chain uh, still being disrupted. And so we're planning on it continuing for the foreseeable future. So we're not predicting an end to it. And we're looking towards productivity and what we call revenue growth management. Friction, commodity pressures, logistics, supply chain issues, just the fucking kitchen sink explanation behind this. And how does price figure into that equation? Yeah, Steve, how does price figure into this equation? Now listen to the whole thing here. It's masterful. Well, price is important. Price is one of the levers for us. And, you know, we don't talk prospectively about pricing, but when you look at what we've done over the course of this year, we've actually been ahead of it. So we've been able to cover all the commodity types of costs that we've seen. And we do that through uh, price. We do that through mix. We do uh, do that through assortment, all sorts of things. But what we really try and keep um, at the center plate is our consumer and making sure that we're driving value for the consumer. So as we need to take price, we talk about the the right to take price or the deserving um, of taking price, asking consumers to pay more because we're giving them more in terms of innovation, in terms of value. Okay. Did you hear the word soup in the beginning about price? Let's just play that back. Over the course of this year, we've actually been ahead of it. So we've been able to cover all the commodity types of costs that we've seen and we do that through uh, price, we do that through mix, we do, uh, do that through assortment, all sorts of things. Price, mix, assortment, all sorts of things, he says. What the fuck does that actually mean? It's not all sorts of things, it's just raising prices. Underlying demand is strong. They have no supply chain issues as evidenced by their increase in volume and new markets. They are inflation. He said it directly. They, quote, got ahead of commodity pricing issues. How? By raising prices. You, Steve, you are inflation. If you got ahead of it, then you're the driver. You see how this shit works? Talk about opportunistic capitalism. People are home, locked in, eating more snacks. So they just raise their prices and conveniently blamed it on factors that are not their factors. They just saw a chance to raise prices and they fucking took it. But don't worry because he's also sensitive to the consumer. As we need to take price, we talk about the the right to take price or the deserving um, of taking price, asking consumers to pay more because we're giving them more in terms of innovation, in terms of value. The right to take price? You're deserving of a raise because you drove value somehow? Steve, if you give the same product at a higher price, that is not the definition of value. And taking price? What the fuck is that? Innovation? Oh, please, tell me how your latest Cheez-It innovation was so fucking groundbreaking, you deserve the right to, quote, take price? This is standard Wall Street euphemism bullshit. Taking price? Here's the real translation. We raised prices because we could and no one could stop us. Our supply chain is fine. In fact, we're humming. More business than ever. More volume than ever. And we raised prices because we wanted to. 
That's the honest response here, but you're listening to a masterclass in Wall Street fucking bullshit. And they'll turn all this shit around on the heroic workers by saying that they're greedy. That's why we have inflation. That's why we hate workers. That's why the corporate media is complicit in these narratives. And that's why we need financial and news literacy training to spot this fucking bullshit a mile away. And that, my dear unfuckers, is why we need unions. I think it's really important and really right exactly what you said, that if this Starbucks organizing were just happening in isolation, you think, well, it's a really great story, but maybe it will lead to something, maybe it won't. But it isn't. You know, it's happening at a time where an increasing number of workers all over the country are talking union and not just the usual suspects. You know, you've like, you know, online media workers, you've got tech workers, you've got museum workers, gallery workers. Even whiskey workers. Yeah, yeah, all sorts, you know. So, I mean, again, the numbers, you know, individually are not always huge, but collectively there's clearly some kind of change that's been happening. And as you said, we've had a wave, I'm not calling a strike wave, but a wave of strikes, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and threatened strikes at Kaiser, at the University of California, at, you know, a lot of big employers at Harvard. At the, Some um, victories too, and then we had yeah. the IATSE oh. one. And you know, wonderful victories at UC2 amongst the lecturers. Right. They got right. a fabulous contract out of the threatened strike there. And, you know, Part of the, you know, the sort of enormous number of people quitting their jobs as well was also a form of protest. I mean, it's the kind of form of protest you get when you don't have any sort of like more collectivist type of action available to you. You know, you can't stay and improve the conditions, you know, but you leave, you know, like you said, stuff this job, you know, I'm going to get another one or So all of that's happening. As you said, I mean, again, if you were just to, to, to look at the Kellogg strike in isolation, you would think, oh, no, this is kind of reminiscent to a lot of the strikes that we saw in the 70s, 80s and 90s where workers went out and, you know, they were either threatened with permanent replacements being brought in or they were actually permanently replaced. And, you know, most of those strikes ended badly for for the unions and for the workers involved. And that has contributed massively to the the huge decline we're seeing in strike levels in the United States. Now, we're talking about this uh, as a strike wave or some type of upsurge in the number of of strikes. But, you know, it has to be understood in the context of we're we're starting at very, very low levels, you know, in the past decades, the past two decades, in fact, you know, I mean, strikes were in like the three, four hundreds, you know, per large industrial stoppages, even in the early 70s, you know, in the the late 40s, they were sky, you know, the number was off the charts. And now we're typically down to like, you know, eight or 10 or 15, maybe in a big year, you know, of major work stoppages. And that includes lockouts as well as strikes. So 
the numbers. And we are talking, we should just say the private sector, because we saw spectacular teacher strikes in the public sector throughout 2018. But yes, go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the sort of sign that, you know, something was changing in 2018. And, but even if you look at the types of workers who have been going on and strike, you know, it's been disproportionately teachers, education workers, librarians, nurses, nurses, healthcare workers, etc. It hasn't been a lot of traditional industrial workers like you used to see, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, you know, anyone who said any. Yeah. yeah, Phelps Dodge, Caterpillar, like, you know, all of these big iconic strikes. But as I said, it was because, now, why, why did that happen? So, you know, most people, again, you know, probably might have some familiarity with there's a 1937 Supreme Court case, McKay Radio, and it was actually the first time the Supreme Court came up and, set, and it wasn't even the main point of the case, but it did sort of indicate uh, in the case that, yeah, it was lawful. You, you could not fire a worker for going out in an economic strike, but you could permanently replace them. <laughs> it's one of these things that there, it does make a difference in a law. distinction but, with know, the difference? I yeah, mean- well, you know, in terms of the worker, you know, they're still out of a job. So, but the thing was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we didn't have this sort of like huge wave of, you know, the use of permanent replacements and threatened use of permanent replacement, with the one exception of the American South. You know, when the CIO tried to operate the textile plants in the Carolinas during Operation Dixie in the 40s and 50s, this was a very, very common tactic, you know, that they would sort of threaten to, and they would, in fact, replace workers who went out on strikes. But, you know, in most of the rest of the country, where, you know, collective bargaining was far more entrenched, this didn't go on very much. And, you know, there's some dispute amongst historians. There's a very good labor historian at Georgetown, Joe McCartan, fabulous historian. He wrote a very good book about the Pacto strike, uh, the air traffic controller strike in 1981, where Ronald Reagan broke the union and threw the, the leaders of the union in jail and uh, replaced all of the workers. And you know, that book, which, you know, is a wonderful book, wonderful historian, but it sort of describes <laughs> PACO as a so-called PACO moment. You know, PACO changed everything because it was essentially giving the, the green light to employers who wanted to take hard line in terms of breaking strikes. If the federal government says it's okay to do this, if they can play hardball, you know, bring in permanent re- replacements, then it's okay for you to do it too. The, the reality is actually a little bit more complicated because, and I mean, I've read a lot about this, but I've published a bunch on it too. But, you know, so it really, the big change really happened in the 1970s. You know, if you look, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out a publication called Employers Bargaining Objectives Every Year. And this was one of the questions that they used to always include was, you know, if you have faced industrial action or if you were to face industrial action, would you use permanent replacements? Would you threaten to use permanent replacements? And the numbers that said they would either use them or threaten to use them just went up 
astronomically in the 1970s. And I mean, there are labor history books, very good ones that talk about the 70s as this pivotal decade. You know, that was really when the business roundtable and some of the most conservative reactionary members of the corporate community sat down and said, you know, we can't tolerate these high labor prices anymore. And, you know, Doug Fraser of the UAW famously called it, you know, engaging in a one-sided class war. You know, the the capitalist side, the employer side was engaging in war against unions and workers, but they weren't fighting back. So this phenomenon of permanent replacements really sort of dates back. I mean, you know, it dates back to the 30s and it was used in the South, but it really dates back to the 70s, 80s, 90s and contributed massively to the decline of strikes. Now, having published three or four articles, you know, when I started graduate school, the AFL-CIO's legislative priority was trying to get legislation banning permanent replacement workers. They tried it during the first Bush, you know, Bush one, and then they tried it during Clinton administration. You know, same old story, just couldn't get it through the Senate, you know, and so it died. And, you know, and I, you know, I just started graduate school. I wrote a few papers about that, published them. I thought, you know, by the time I started my first job, you know, London School of Economics in 2000, I thought this had completely disappeared as a live issue. You know, I thought, well, it was one of these things that used to be a really good big deal. It used to be really important. And it's definitely important in terms of understanding the, the huge decline in industrial action in the United States. But we're not going to see a surge of permanent replacements and high-profile strikes. But here we are. Hey, everyone. So we know, we know it's the time of year when everyone is asking you for something. But the fact is that Best of the Left is also one of those entities that is really asking you for something because we really need your help. We're asking for 100 new or upgraded members by the end of the year. But to be totally honest, we'll take as many as we can get. If we get 100, we're going to start asking for more. Because over the course of 2021, a distressing number of members had to downgrade or cancel their memberships because their financial situation changed. And we've been giving out a lot of financial hardship memberships. Times are tough and uncertain. We certainly get that and we are feeling it ourselves. Altogether, those cancellations, along with the slowest year in ad sales that I can remember, has really put the squeeze on us. So if you can become a member today, we could really use it. Just head to bestoftheleft.com slash support for all the ways to sign up. You can also find us directly on Patreon or right inside the Apple Podcasts app. When you become a member, you not only support the future of the show, but also get to hear the thoughtful and fun bonus episodes that Amanda, our assistant producers, Aaron and Dion, and myself have been putting out every other week just for members. How do we know that they're good? Here is what member Kim wrote to us a while back. The bonus shows feel like I'm getting to hang out with a group of friends who actually know something about the world. You all are so great. Thought-provoking, yet fun, relaxed, but it's obvious that a lot of planning went into it too. It's just the right balance of everything. So we're sorry to hear that Kim doesn't have more worldly friends, but we really appreciate her support and all the kind words. And personally, I think that the bonus shows have only been getting better since she said that a few months ago. 
Now, if you upgrade or sign up right now at the $6 per month level before the end of the year, you'll receive our exclusive custom best of left digital wallpaper for your phone and tablet designed by us, not some underpaid freelancer. We did it. And this artwork is loved by people as discerning as Nick from California, who actually kicked his own children off of his home screen in favor of our art. Got my best of the left art. You're in fierce competition for my lock screen because my kids are one and a half and five. So they're at peak cute. But you are definitely my new home screen background. You know what they say, aim for the moon and you'll land among the stars. Maybe the lock screen was never in the cards for us, but the home screen, it's still an honor. We'll take it. And now the last note on supporting the show, don't forget that we now have best of left gift memberships. So if you're already a member or you just think someone else besides yourself would be more excited to be a member, consider giving the gift of progressive media this holiday season. It's always the right size and one of the few gifts that actually has the power to improve the quality of conversations. A scented candle can't do that. Well, maybe, you know, it'll change the mood. Anyway, as always, thanks for your support. Now, here's the small print. If you sign up or upgrade through our site or on Patreon, look for the link to the artwork in your confirmation email. But if you sign up for your membership directly through Apple Podcasts, there won't be a link to the artwork in your email, but forward your receipt from Apple to j at bestofleft.com, and I'll get right back to you with it. I want to talk again one more time about the labor shortage that isn't there. There is no labor shortage. There never was a labor shortage. If you actually look at the number of people quitting their jobs, more American workers quit their jobs in 2018 and 2019 than did it last year and this year. Only it's a big hot topic now. And you know why? Because employers want those people back at work. And they don't want to pay them more, and they don't want to improve the work conditions. They want to save money on work conditions. They want to save money on workers. They want to recoup the profits they didn't get during the pandemic of 2020 and 2021. And so they want to squeeze more profits out. And talking about a labor shortage might get them some government programs to help them profit at the expense of the working class. Nothing illustrates that better than the half-dozen Republican states where Republican legislatures are now debating passing laws to allow 15- and 16-year-old young people to work more hours than they were allowed to before, doing more jobs than they were allowed to before. A hundred-year struggle in the United States to outlaw child labor is under attack as this country goes backwards compared to every other country. And in order to drive that home, I wanted to give you again a comparison between what the Western European countries have done and what this country is doing. A comparison made even more poignant, even more, by the very modesty of what the Build Back Better bill of Mr. Biden promises to accomplish. In Europe, across Europe, five-week paid vacation is the norm for all workers because it's the law. You want to really help people do that. Most workers in America don't get five weeks paid vacation at the end of a 30-year stint. 
if they're lucky enough to have a 30-year stint for an employer. European countries have freedom of choice. They don't allow a monopoly in politics. Two parties that look very similar trading off the way we do. They don't allow monopolies in politics any more than they allow them in the economy. We do. We oughtn't to. The following countries in Europe have zero tuition to go to college, not just a community college, all the colleges, ready? All public schools, which is how most people get an education. I'm just going to read you the name of the countries. Germany, Norway, Iceland, Austria, France, Czech Republic, Slovenia, Hungary, Greece, and Poland. We're going to give a few community college help. It's not enough. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think, correctly says we don't actually have a labor shortage. We have, in her words, a shortage of, of dignified jobs. She says we have a dignified job shortage. But Republicans think that they've got a solution to the problem. There are, you know, employers looking for employees and they don't want to pay more money. So what do you do? Well, hey, let's have 14-year-olds go to work. Yeah, we did that once before in America. You know, this was this was the uh, you know the Supreme Court back in the day. So one of the one of the first things that they did striking. I believe this was right after uh, uh, after Franklin Roosevelt became president was striking down child labor laws. But this uh, the story is in the Labor Tribune, LaborTribune.com. Republican-controlled legislatures in several states have come up with a novel way to stem the effects of an ongoing labor shortage. Loosen child labor laws governing the number of hours or the times the teenagers are allowed to work. And this is a 14 and 15 year olds. Hey, let's just let them go to work. Right. Makes perfect sense, huh? And the Wisconsin Western Association is like, hey, yeah, this is a great idea. Bring in the 14 year olds. They can serve tables. On the other hand, the AFL-CIO is like, what? And, and Senator Chris Larson, the Democrat from Milwaukee in Wisconsin, he says, I, I think if those employers are looking for workers, what frankly the market should dictate is that they should be raising wages and offering additional benefits, which actually works. People will work for you if you provide them with a decent working environment and reasonable pay and benefits. Sylvia Allegretto, who is a labor economist and the co-chair of the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics, uh, told an interviewer at Salon, quote, and, and by the way, I think this really gets to the nub of this issue right now. She, write, uh, she said, a lot of families are in such dire economic conditions that they might agree to send their kids to work because of necessity. But that's the problem, she says. If you get up and go to work every day, you shouldn't be living in poverty. You should not be living in such dire situations. Families should not need their children to work 30, 35 hours a week, which is what they're proposing in some of these states, in order to keep the family's head above water. Children, uh, 14-year-olds should be studying for school. They shouldn't be flipping burgers. Unless it is... You know, as I, I, I pointed out, when I was 14 or 15, I was, I was flipping burgers. 
but it was on, you know, I, I was limited to, I, as I recall, it was on Saturdays. I, I had my Saturdays. Um, but this, the increase, she goes on to note, the increased reliance on American teenagers to work more hours is also leading to a number of negative outcomes for children who are forced into the labor market at younger ages, including higher rates of substance abuse and high school dropouts, research shows. And this is where we have to make a fundamental decision as a nation. Do we want to basically accommodate employers' desire to have low wages and no benefits by telling poor families, yeah, you can send your kids to work 30, 35 hours a week, no problem. Forget about those kids ever growing up to be you know, really successful because typically that these days requires at least a college education or you know, some sort of trade training so that you can get a good union job. Forget about that. Consign your children to a lifetime of poverty. But hey, the employers don't have to pay as much. Do we do that? Do we go the Republican route? Or do we do what the Democrats are saying and structure our country and our economy in such a way that diminishes poverty? I mean, it's crazy that the number of medical bankruptcies in the United States is probably going to be around a million this year. And it was probably around a million last year. We're not, you know, it takes a couple of years for the numbers to get sorted out and everything. But, you know, it was 640,000 the year before the pandemic. And you got a lot of people who got sick with COVID, ended up in the ICU, have a million dollar hospital bill now, and no way to pay it. And yet the number of medical bankruptcies right across the border in Canada, a country that shares a common language with us by and large, uh, culturally is very similar, demographically is similar to us. The number of medical bankruptcies in Canada is zero. The number of medical bankruptcies in Europe, zero. Taiwan, zero. South Korea, zero. Japan, zero. Here in the United States, a million. And that's just like one symptom. That's just one little indicator of how screwed up our system is. That if somebody in your family goes bro, uh, gets sick, the entire family can go broke. The other thing that we have is almost $2 trillion worth of student loan debt. Again, you don't find this in other countries. Sure, if you want to go to Harvard or Princeton, maybe you can take on a student loan in these other countries. But, you know, in Germany, all the state universities and colleges are absolutely free. There's over 300,000 foreign students in Germany going to college right now for free. And if you're a German citizen, not only do you get free tuition, but in some cases they will subsidize your books and your rent. Which, by the way, is not unique to Germany. This is common among Western European countries. We're the only country in the world that has saddled an entire generation with student debt. And by the way, prior to the Reagan administration, there was no student debt problem in America. In fact, prior to Reagan becoming governor of California, the entire University of California's college system, one of the best in the world, was entirely free or damn close to it. Abraham Lincoln, as president of the United States, took federal lands all across the United States and created 56 
took 56 large tracts of land that could be used, that could be worked for money. They could be logged or they could be farm, you know, turned into farm, agricultural land or whatever. And, and that agricultural land could produce revenue and called these land grant colleges. They were 56 colleges that Lincoln put into place. Michigan State University was one of them. Where the college had the ability to make enough money that they could provide free education or very, very cheap education to their students. My mother went to Michigan State University and graduated back in the 1940s. Uh, magna cum laude in English, which is why I'm pretty good at English. Um, and she put herself through, through MSU with a summer job up in Charlevoix, Michigan, where she grew up, as a lifeguard. And on weekends, you know, through the rest of the year, propping and washing airplanes at the Lansing Airport. She did that mostly, though, in exchange for for flying lessons. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it was like college was not an issue. We're the only country with this. And so we're looking at this, like, this is impoverishing families. It's, it's creating a terrible challenge just for daily life. And the solution that the Republicans have is let's let 14-year-olds work, you know, uh, 30 hours a week. Instead of letting the market work and essentially having the marketplace force employers to raise wages and benefits. I also wanted to get your thoughts on the labor movement and progressives. And you're in the labor movement. You're also a progressive person. You worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign, for instance. How do you see those two things mixing? I mean, like, what is the labor movement's role in the progressive movement? Does it have a role or how do you think it could be stronger? You know, you look at the labor movement across whatever the OECD countries or the most advanced capitalist countries. In almost every case, there's a labor party that forms sometime in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it's essentially because you have these unions that fight for workplace rights and, you know, conditions and wages and things, the bread and butter stuff of being someone who works for a living. But there's inevitably things that go beyond your workplace, whether it's sort of social issues like, you know, unemployment when you don't have a job, or if it's that your whole industry is facing something that your one employer can't fix across the board. So in every case, there's always a political expression of the union movement. And in every other country, you know, every other comparable country, there's been a political party that forms on that basis. They call them labor parties. In in the UK, it's called labor. Literally, that's their large social democratic party. In this country, our labor party insofar as it exists at all, is submerged somewhere inside of the Democratic Party. Basically, it's it's a junior partner, it's a pinky toe of, it's an appendage of, but the union movement doesn't have its own independent expression in the United States politically, which is really complicated because it means that the unions are in the same party that a lot of their bosses are. So they would be at different sides of the negotiating table for a union contract, where they're at the same side of the table negotiating national politics. So progressives 
you know, exists somewhere in that party with them. They're often on the same, in the same wing, same corner of the Democratic Party, but often not. There's, you know, mismatches all the time. The way labor has acted politically has been to be a junior partner of the establishment of the Democrats, which means that often what their narrow short-term interest is, is to support what the party wants. So when we saw, for example, this is a great example, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, the largest union in the AFL-CIO Labor Federation, came out saying, let's pass the infrastructure bill before we get a deal on reconciliation. This was a break with progressives on the inside baseball of this stuff. And what was so strange about it is that she's the head of the American Federation of Teachers. Very little of what her membership wants from these congressional acts is in the infrastructure piece that she was supporting. It's much more in the reconciliation piece that she was arguably imperiling if you take the progressive strategy for it. And why would a teachers union president do that? Well, the best way to understand it is because she's trying to act as part of the Democratic Party, not as part of the Labor Party. So progressives are occasionally, frequently, sometimes at odds with, you know, the unions as political actors. And part of it is also that the unions have, in a lot of cases, have gotten so small or so not present uh, as parts of, you know, just the percentage of your constituency as a congressperson that's union is much smaller. So Democrats still rely on endorsements and dollars from unions. But in terms of being in touch with actual union members who put those concerns in a clear way outside of the sort of political apparatus of the tops of the labor movement, I don't think progressives hear that much from rank and file union members. I don't know how much the squad is in touch with rank and file John Deere workers. And that would have been true decades ago, that the progressive wing of the party is close to the UAW and close to the members of the UAW and in touch with those members as constituents of their district. Because the UAW has shrunk so much, because the union movement has shrunk so much, it's less of a part of the daily political life of the progressive wing of the party. So there's just a big disconnect here. I think everything I've seen from the progressive wing of the Democrats is you know, please, union members, come be involved. We want you to be our base. We wish you were our base. We wish our base was unionized. We'd love to make that happen. There's big structural issues that have kept that disconnect alive and how it expresses itself politically is for the most part, their labor and the progressives are in the same minority faction of the Democratic Party, occasionally at odds, occasionally aligned, but neither of them are big enough to team up and overcome the corporate influence of the party, let alone, you know, defeat the GOP. We've just heard clips today, starting with On the Media highlighting the inherent need for political struggle alongside labor and class struggle. Jackman Radio undercut the labor-friendly veneer of companies like Starbucks and Amazon who offer relatively high starting wages. Intercepted explained the strike at Kaiser Permanente. Uneffing the Republic broke down the Wall Street bullshit of Kellogg's CEO. Jackman Radio explained the context in which we are seeing this current wave of strikes. Professor Richard Wolf on Economic Update discussed the labor shortage that isn't. 
as did Tom Hartman while explaining that it is a raise in wages, benefits, and working conditions rather than child labor that we need to catch up with the rest of the world, and Intercepted described the fractured nature of the relationship between elected progressives and the labor movement. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from On the Media taking more lessons from the Luddites. You wrote that one of my goals in writing this book is to turn Marxists into Luddites. My argument boils down to this. To be a good Marxist is to also be a Luddite. And while I want to make Marxists into Luddites, I also have another goal. I want to turn people critical of technology into Marxists. And uneffing the Republic, correcting the record on Andrew Carnegie, the Pullman-Porter strikes, and the origin of Labor Day. Carnegie's corporation compelled law enforcement to force the workers to end the strike and hired an outside agency called the Pinkertons, a private contracting security firm that essentially employed armed goons to do the dirty work where the law wouldn't. After initially rebuffing the Pinkertons, the employees were ultimately overwhelmed and the strike ended in brutal fashion with several dead and the union defeated. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in with regards to some comments from the wisdom piece when you were talking about democracy and midterm elections. You were talking about, you know, fear might work and and now may be the time for fear. And then you talked about the midterm elections that we should hope and, and try for Democrats to hold on to control. But and you said, I think I hate to even say this out loud, that the Republicans might likely take you know, it's possible that they'll take control. And so with regard to that fear piece and the speaking out loud and the fact that Democrats are too reserved and so forth, I think it should be the other way around. I think we should be saying, hey, if we're not careful, if we don't do something, Republicans are going to take control and you should be fearful of that. And so what are you going to do as an individual to stop that from happening? And that should be the message being sent out. Not, oh, well, we're going to try to hold on. No, we are going to lose control. And that's probably the reality from where I I look at things. We are going to lose control unless a bunch of you people stand up and get out the vote and, and talk about it and get things done. Like, that's the reality of it. Because if we sit back like, yeah, it'll probably work out, but maybe it won't. Well, it's not going to work out. So anyway, that's my two thoughts on on the comment that was said there. (laughs) Thanks. Stay awesome. Wear your mask and wash your hands. Hey, Jay. It's Nick from California. I was finishing up the second to last episode that's posted and i heard kwai's comment about essentially do you think there are different tiers of humans and at first i didn't necessarily connect every dot that was being made but i don't doing the thought experiments and then thinking about conservatives i know I, i think there's something really strong there actually about essentially do you believe there's multiple tiers 
of humans with some being lesser than you and that sort of is one of the bigger dividing lines and translates into where people fall in American politics or in politics in general. I was really struck by it. I think there's a lot there to unpack and um, I need to think about it some more but that's I thought that was a really novel way of framing the place we're in and I have to think about whether it truly funnels people into the people who want to establish the keep the status quo people who believe there are multiple tiered humans versus those who are progressive who think there's only one tier I don't know I just to be honest I just think that that thought just needs to to be meditated on by all of us because I, I really think there is something truly insightful about Kwai's insight regarding conservatism or progressivism and, and wanting to change the system versus keep the status quo. It changed the way I may look at things, but I have to think it through more. But I just got inspired to call in and say, wow, that was a really good voicemail that got me to think a lot. Okay, Jay, I've got it. It can't be as simple as saying that people who reduce people into two tiers of humans is the answer, because then that would be to basically force people into two camps of humans, those who think there are two tiers of humans and those who don't. So it gets a, a bit recursive there. So I think the problem I had with it is that it is a little bit simplistic to suggest that the answer can be suggested to be that that's the major dividing line because any dividing line by that is, you know, again, just classifying people as different tiers of humans. But that said, I haven't thought my way through it. There's a lot about what he said as far as people who see us as one humanity versus those who see us as, you know, superiority-wise, inferiority-wise. There is something there, there. I haven't fully thought it through. Anyway, I really thank him for his voicemail. It was really thought-provoking. I think there's a lot of good substance to be unpacked, and I still have a more thinking to do. But I realized when I said, wait, something about it strikes me. I realized what it was. Thank you. Probably won't call back. Take care, man. Stay awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So we just heard from Alan and Nick. First of all, Alan was referring to the live event that I did earlier this week, a little Q&A, a little Ask Me Anything, and I don't know if the way Alan is describing what I said is accurate or not, but it is not how I feel. So I'll go ahead and clarify now that I actually agree entirely with Alan's point. I have no fear about describing the upcoming 2022 midterm elections as uh, not looking great right now, and that that should strike fear into the hearts of all democracy-loving Americans. What I recall thinking when discussing these elections coming up 
on the live event was that I had seen an elected Democrat on television talking with some television host, and the host pointed out the kind of obvious thing that all the data is pointing to Democrats losing the House of Representatives in next year's election. And the elected Democrat would not accept that as a premise and said, no, 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 I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I thought, okay, great. Why? Based on what? What strategy is this? Is this just a hope for the best sort of strategy? Or should we, as Alan was saying, strike fear into the hearts of people and say, yes, we are going to lose these elections if we do not mount up right now and do everything we can to stop that from happening? That's the strategy that I certainly agree with. Alan seems to be on the same page. And uh, the idea that elected Democrats would prefer to sweep aside all the evidence that is to the contrary is uh, almost certainly to their detriment. Second up, Nick had lots of thoughts, some some uh, contradictory, you know, within himself, just as as he was sort of processing what Kwai had said in a previous voicemail an episode or two ago. And I'll, I'll start with this. First, Nick, what you need to understand right up front is that there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who think that all of humanity can be divided neatly into two groups and those who don't. But to attempt to clarify the point that Nick is tripping over, I think that what Kwai is describing is a difference in the way people think, whereas the examples he gives of conservative thinking express a difference in the fundamental humanity and or inherent equality of different groups. For instance, I could say that there are approximately two schools of thought on our criminal justice system. The first is that we incarcerate people of color at higher rates than white people because of racist structures in the system that create that outcome. The other school of thought is that racialized groups of people of color are naturally more criminal than white people. Now, me saying that is dividing people into two groups or two ways of thinking, but neither of those ideas suggests something inherent about any member of either group. You can have either of those thoughts, and it doesn't mean anything about your equality as a human, but the difference in those two beliefs actually does imply exactly that about the target group. So the progressive belief also the belief that all evidence points to, is that the disparity in incarceration is the result of systemic forces. Whereas the conservative idea isn't just an alternative perspective on cause and effect. To hold the conservative idea requires a belief in a fundamental difference between peoples based on membership in a racialized group. Or Maybe what the smart ones will say is that it's just a difference in culture rather than racialization, which is just a more refined way of, on one hand, dog-whistling racism, but primarily to distract away from systemic forces and to ignore that as, as a factor. The same goes with the question of homosexuality being a choice, which Kwai brought up. To believe that homosexuality isn't a choice requires no judgment of anyone, but the reverse does. To believe that homosexuality is a choice requires the belief in separate kinds of people. So, dividing people based on their ideas is very different than dividing them based on one's perceived understanding about something inherent within people 
It's frankly a bit like believing in reverse discrimination, where conservatives argue that it's discriminatory to not allow them to discriminate. Oh, I thought you were supposed to be the open and accepting ones who accept people for who they are. But now you're not even accepting me and my bigotries for what I am. What a hypocrite. You know, it's obviously absurd when phrased that way, but it sounds like it almost makes sense for just a minute when you hear someone say it in a much softer way, like, I don't want to be forced to make a cake for someone because of my religious beliefs. But it's all really just a sort of ham-handed reversal of logic that does not hold up. Discrimination is a river that does not flow in both directions at once. And making such a claim, suggesting that different racialized groups of people or people with different sexual attractions are inherently different, is the first step on the path to dehumanization. Not necessarily, it is possible to see two groups as somehow fundamentally different, but still equal. But it is a whole lot easier to go down the path of superiority and inferiority once you create a dividing line than if you start with the understanding that we are all fundamentally one people. So Kwai, in a sense, is creating two groups of people, pointing out that people think differently, but he is not taking the next step of questioning their humanity or their inherent equality as humans. In fact, he is doing the opposite by reaffirming everyone's equality. So Nick's concern that Kwai might possibly sort of accidentally be recreating the exact illogical phenomenon of dividing people arbitrarily into two groups, I think is not quite hitting the nail on the head with this issue. But it did give me a good excuse to clarify, which I always like. And in Nick's defense, he said in a portion of his voicemail that I cut out uh, that he was calling late at night and wasn't really at his sharpest. So I'm sure that he has figured out all these clarifications on his own by now. If you have comments, questions, or something you would like to just barely misunderstand so that I can help clarify it, give us a call at 202-999-3991 or send me an email to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all right through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.